through those dark times, that's where true transformation happens. You have to break, like the seed has to break and shatter before it it grows. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. We've all got a tale or two to tell, and each week you'll be hearing from my special guest who joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. Today I'm joined by the multi-passionate, creative, writer, influencer, coach and author Hannah Swanston. In the media space, Hannah is a copy and creative director for mega brands and broadcasters from PR and fashion to digital and entertainment. Working with global household names, her client list includes 20th Century Fox, Universal, Gucci, Virgin, Nike and Lululemon. Across in the well-being space, she is known as High Vibe Hannah and is the founder of the High Vibe Life. Known for making spiritual well-being cool and accessible among London's modern mystics and fashionistas, Hannah offers one-to-one coaching, group meditations, intuitive readings and energy healing workshops. Her mission is to help tribes of women step into their power, transform their lives and align with their higher selves. But as Hannah says, she didn't always have this thing called life figured out. In fact, like all of us, she's still figuring it out. Hannah's first book, her memoir, will be published next year, talking about her coming of age roller coaster life from wild girl to wise woman. She is also writing a sassy life guide for women who want to blaze their own trail. Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Ah, oh, thank you for having me in these strange times. In these strange times. <laughs> I mean, how are you? I think the last time we saw each other was in normal times, I guess, at Marie Forleo's event in London this time last year, which now seems like a different lifetime. How have you been? Good, good, good. Yeah, it was, um, you know, those times where people used to stand within arm's reach of each other in fact actually it was about a thousand women screaming and (laughs) shouting and running to seats trying to get to the front to see Marie yeah I mean we didn't know what social distancing was back then no no maybe it's good actually in that respect you know I quite like the tube now much quieter hmm yeah a few seats away (laughs) nothing no one (laughs) I always really enjoy speaking to people like you who are multi-passionate multi-hyphenate because you just never know what's going to come up in conversation or what the latest thing is that you're up to I mean what's what's keeping you busy just now well since lockdown I've been writing like crazy Mm. I've got the memoir coming out next year and about the crazy life that you're going to hear about (laughs) And as you said, I've got a self-help book coming out and it's dedicated to all the the girls in bathrooms I met over the years and kind of like an ode to the, the, the empty bathroom now, you know, in, from nightclubs to restaurants. Where are all these women? Like they're no longer standing around the mirror giving each other the best pep talk. So I thought I'm going to write a book to make up for it. All that lost yeah, time. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I hadn't even actually thought of that, but it's true. I think whether you're kind of 16, 17, 18, starting out in those nightclub blues to even like being in, for me, in my 40s, it still happens, doesn't it? You kind of... <laughs> it, does, it still happens, even if it's in the office and, and you're saying, has anyone got a mint? 
And before you know it, you know, it, it's moved on from, oh, I love your hair or I love your shoes to, yeah, I, I also have issues with my mum. Yeah, I'm, I'm also resolving, you know, trauma. And it's like, wow, do we just become best friends? <laughs> no, we need these spaces. We need these spaces. Definitely. We're fairly similar in age. And certainly when I was at school and university, this notion of being able to carve out a life with different working strands and make money from it. It, it just wasn't discussed. I mean, maybe people didn't even know that you could do it back then. When did you come to realize that you could craft a career, a way of living made up entirely of your different talents and interests? I was actually writing about this this morning. And back then it was a lot harder. And I'm talking about 20 years ago. I'm nearly 40. So back then, you know, there was a society had a way. Here's the route to success. You climb the ladder. You have to do this. You have to do that. And I just looked at it and I thought, I don't want to do that. I have too many interests. I want to go out into the world and explore and experience. But because there wasn't that framework then, I, as you will find out, had to break some rules and go into trouble, said the wrong things. But that was me, you know, going out there and expressing myself and saying, I want to break out of this box. I don't like this box. And now, you know, we're, we're so lucky. Everyone is lucky now that they get to carve out their own path. There's never been a better time to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. You can self-publish. You can become a dog groomer overnight. You can become a podcast host. You can do all these amazing things. The young people know that, I think, more than older people like us. I say <laughs> older people, but, you know, <laughs> we've been around the block a few yeah. times, but we're still so attached to those old paradigms and it's harder I think for a lot of of older women and and guys you know that's set in their ways or society's ways that's now kind of breaking away and I think it's important for us to express different parts of ourselves especially being creative and to explore our passions because that's where our purpose lies and you know there's so many different facets to ourselves and we should be able to express that in our careers. So it's kind of giving ourselves permission. Yeah. I mean, giving yourself permission is huge, isn't it? Even to mm -hmm. to do anything a bit differently. I think for, for our generation a bit older, I think things were so rigid. Mm -hmm. You could almost become, I don't want to say brainwashed, but you, you just kind of follow that strict path, don't you, as you said, and not necessarily know that you can do otherwise. Yeah. I mean, you can literally just leave your corporate job and, and open a juice bar <laughs> overnight, you know, and there's money that, that can come to you. And it's it's the confidence. It really is the confidence and and realizing that you're not stuck. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how brainwashed, you know, a lot of us know we are, you know, the whole my limiting beliefs are mm. holding me back. We can change these things. We can rewire our brains. We can create new habits. We can we can we can do the things. We can. And I think we're kind of to be grateful to some of our Gen Z and millennial friends for showing us that we can and that we don't have to do things in the same old way. I really I mean, I don't really like talking about different generations, to be honest, because it it's kind of, it can be divisive, but there are certainly things we can learn from each other, which I think is exciting. Definitely, definitely. It's one of the first times I think that we're actually looking at our kids, not that I have any, and learning from them. And, you know, some of them are coming up with like these fierce attitudes. And it's not just, see, back then it would be, you can become anything, that's what your mum would say. And then mm. you would grow <laughs> up and say, actually, mum, that, that fairy tale, 
you sold me was a bit of a lie and that Disney movie was a bit of a delusion and I really can't be everything I thought I wanted to be and I was going to be a pop star or a movie star and I was going to get a Nobel Prize I was going to go off and save the rainforest and Mm. we just weren't given the tools just the rules to not live those lives Um, and then we look at the kids today and they're off doing all of those things and it's because of you know the digital world that's helping them well I was going to say I think that's the thing as much as it's breaking some of the rules you mentioned the tools the tools are now available Mm. so that we can do some of these things I mean we've seen that lockdown would have been such a different beast by no means has it been easy but if it weren't for the tech, I don't know what this might have looked like. And so many people wouldn't have been able to work from home in this way or even just keep connected with friends and loved ones. Yeah, definitely. I think this was a long time coming. There's a long list of pros and cons for lockdown. And I am massively yeah. for people looking at themselves and saying, who is it that I actually want to be? What do I want to do with my life? And then using these tools to say, project them forward into a new a whole new lifestyle, a whole new parallel reality. And um, I think that, you know, it's it's forced people to almost become who they were too scared to be before because they didn't have any other option to become suddenly, oh, I get to be who I want to be now. I mean, there's so many of my friends that launch their own businesses. One of my friends is like turning a hundred grand in the last few months. It's insane. Mm, yeah. She's a single mum. It's insane. And this is who she was always meant to be. But her career, which he was now furloughed from, and then, mm-hmm. you know, became redundant, forced her to become who she was meant to be. It was almost like the universe said, people, do what you need to do. Like, mm-hmm. you have to be who you want to be. It's definitely a time of transformation and changing direction. And I don't think it's an accident on a personal level that, you know, I'm starting this podcast or I wanted this first series to be a- around just that to have the opportunity to have conversations around changing direction in our lives. So when we were preparing for this conversation, you've chosen three times of quite major transformation in your life. And I'd love to start exploring the first of these shifts, what you've called from bad girl to good girl. Yeah, so the bad girl, Hannah. I think a lot of people, well, I hope a lot of people can resonate and the naughty, wicked girls back in the day who didn't want to obey the rules I went to quite a a strict St Trinian's style girls school in Hertfordshire Mm -hmm. back then in the early 90s it was the sporty ones the smart ones and that was kind of it really if you didn't fit into these molds and you were kind of an outcast and I always felt like I never really fit in so I used to break the rules And I had this excessive energy. As all creatives will know, we have this energy. If it's not projected in the right way, then we're going to rebel. And basically, I just rebelled. I took my rebellion a little little bit too far. So I guess, you know, it also leads to a few good tales. So what what happened and and where, what age are we talking about in terms of this breaking the rules, rebelling a bit too much? What, What triggered that? Do you know? The thing is as well that there were so many horrid girls and every girl will will understand this, especially going to a girls' school. The mean Mm -hmm. girls trying to be in the cool groups, trying to fit in socially as well as the education side. It's hard growing up. I think I was just one of those people that found it really hard. 
I was in a a group of girls that would get into fights and it would always be who are the, the older girls going to beat up basically at lunch. And then if you'd snogged someone's boyfriend, say at a school disco, that was it. You were toast. And that was when I started taking the girls that I knew were going to get beaten up. Sometimes it would be me and we would run out of school and then obviously get in ridiculous amounts of trouble for, but you know, I still stand by that. I would rather run out of school and get told off than have a black eye. It's no fun getting punched. But undoubtedly, you know, like, I mean, eventually those girls will come find you. And I was beaten up so badly one time that um, it's really even hard to talk about because mm-hmm. it was such a traumatic experience. And even though you think you're cool and you're doing all the right things. And mm-hmm. then um, I was beaten up so badly and dragged downstairs and kicked in the curb in front of people and when it it, it, the pride hurts more than you know the physical and the physical yeah I had a neck brace and everything it was it was so embarrassing oh my goodness and um and so it all coincided with that and trying to be cool and I was not the only one you know girls can be really really horrid especially in areas like Hertfordshire in the 90s and it was a real class system in St Albans where I lived my boyfriend always laughs and says, you know, like the mean streets of St. Albans. <laughs> but, you know, it's mm. hard. You know, we, we went from a, a small house to suddenly a big house. And then I wasn't the poor girl anymore. I was kind of the rich girl. And then it was used to get trouble in that area from, you know, like the local kids in the park saying, you can't come in here. Had you stayed at the same school then when you moved house? No. So I went from a transition from schools as well. So mm. this, is, this is where it's hard. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate looking back at school years and it's, do you obey the rules? Do you run out of school? So I think to numb all of that stuff, I started doing everything, drinking, hanging out with boys, not going to school at all and just going into London, getting the train, stealing, anything mm. to get a rush and then trying different drugs and drinking. And then it got to the point where, I just wasn't going to school and getting bad grades um, and I just didn't care. And um, yeah, then it was, you're not, you can't come to this school anymore, basically. So I was 15, 16, kind of without any friends at this point because I annoyed so many people. Yeah, I was kind of like out of society. It was the first time I ever realized I am I'm not, I don't fit in. I've got to kind of carve my own path. And I started hanging around with these drug dealers and these a lot older people from London and and they would pick me up and take me into London and we used to go to raves and drum and bass raves and China Whites like from scrappy raves to like high class mm. events mm. and I think I always looked a little bit older so from 16 17 I was suddenly went from trying to not get beaten up at school to hanging out with Essex gangsters and celebrities and footballers in the West End yeah and I just I'm going to up my game and hang out with people first of all it was to kind of protect me because I knew I needed protection I needed to kind of learn how to look after myself Mm. and you know they taught me so many things yeah some of them were criminals you might say, but they looked after me and, and taught me about the streets and how money was made and how business really operates and the rules of society and, and to to not get caught up in what the schools are trying to tell me to do. 
And I just kind of got a bit street smart, I guess you could say. And I became a bit fearless. And I think the drink and the drugs and everything, I just became this, I, I just became so fearless. And I <laughs> I was taught how to fight. It was like one of those movies where like... I was, I was just going to say, this sounds like a movie where you've been plucked from the streets of St. Albans and then kind of in this, I don't know, this boot camp of... yeah. It was nuts. And even the girls, because girls were a part of this crew as well. So it was like a girl gang. And, um, you know, it's a lot of my story is how I began in, in girl gangs and then it moves to sisterhoods. Mm. But I, I always felt that sisterhood feeling, even though there were criminals and ooh, a bunch of misfits. But together you belonged. Yeah, we together we belonged. And that taught me more about the world than anything. And it's something that I've taken with me throughout my whole life. I went on and crew this girl gang, not purposely, just people started coming to me and saying, oh, can you stick up for me because I've just been beaten up or, you know, before I knew it, I had all these like young girls coming up to me and I would look after them. Some mm. of them are still my friends today. And before I knew it, there was like 20 of us in this girl gang and no one could ever come. No, no one could, you know, try it because you're not going to get through to us anymore. We're not going to stand for it. You can't beat us up. You can't talk to us this way mm -hmm. so we were kind of fighting our own game nobody knew what was happening the teachers didn't really know the parents didn't know it was like this world and we were struggling in this crazy version of society that we'd found ourselves in you know as young as 14 to 18 I'd say mm -hmm. and this went on for a few years and how old were you at this point when you were kind of like were you, would you say you were the leader um well, the courts said I was the leader. <laughs> I was finally arrested <laughs> because all these girls were too young to stand trial and no one really knew the truth. And that's the, the beginning of the story of the memoir when I'm standing in, in court going, damn, I think I've taken this teenage rebellion a little bit too far. And how did that come to be? What, if, if you can talk about it, what landed you in front of the judge? There was one big <laughs> girl fight, basically, full of all the girls in my local area who'd been beaten up, oppressed, whatever. You know, we'd come together and we'd had enough. And we were like this, this ultimate sisterhood, girl gang, you can't mess with us. But still kind of high vibes. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> we used to go out to like, garage nights and and thinking we were like we look pretty fly in our Versace jeans and little mm -hmm. crop chops and big gold hoops and we we didn't have any worries because we knew that no one could no, no one had tried to you know beat us up or be mean to us in years so we felt like we were winning and then there was this one night where that was tested and mm. I think after years and years of you know being kicked down and told we weren't going to achieve anything at school. Quite a few of us had been expelled at that point um, from different schools and we just found each other. And, and I think we just fought back in a way that sent a message to the whole world, don't mess with us. Um, but in that, we broke bones, we pulled out hair and, you know, the same happened to us. It was like the worst fight you could ever imagine all lights on in this in this bar, everyone, the whole town watching, CCTV, and it was waking up going, oh my God, what's going to happen? And mm. as it 
turns out I was basically on the run for about a year. No one was, you know, snitching, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I finally got arrested and I was the one that had to take the blame basically for everyone because I was the oldest and, you know, being 18. And mm -hmm. But it's quite hard to tell when you're that young as well, you know, with this mentality, you'd say, you know, I was sticking up. And a lot of it was defence, but I have to hold my hands up and say it wasn't. You know, it was the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And when this happened, were you living at home still? Were you living with your I parents? Was, I was kind of between and I was studying. And that was the that was my get out of jail card. Hmm. The fact that I was white privilege, you know, that really helped me. They look hmm. at me and even to this day, they look at me and say, how could you be a criminal how yeah, could, you don't fit the, the perceived no. mold no and obviously back then as well being so young and this white blonde girl how how could this girl from a prestigious family in Hertfordshire do this it it must be the you know she must have got in the wrong crowd no I was the wrong crowd <laughs> mm. <laughs> um so it was I was facing up to 20 years in prison it was it was that insane because I had fraud and other things you know, that I'd collected along along my rebellion journey. Mm. And it was, wow, this is the moment I've realised. And it was really like the movie, standing there looking up at my parents in pieces. And it was like this light bulb moment that went off and said, oh my God, I have to change my life. Like, what have I done? It was like waking up from this dream going, mm -hmm. oh God, who have I become? And it was almost in that moment where I said, I don't, and I think they realised, you know, she, 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 did, it's an accident, surely. Like, that was the one thing that saved me. Um, and it's, and it's horrible as well because all the other people, you know, that aren't white privileged don't get that option. Mm. And but that was my wild card, and I thought I can't, I can't, I have to utilise this. And I promised, and I vowed, and I made an intention, you know, to the universe, to God, to whoever was out there. To, that, to help me to change my life and, and to just, I begged, I begged, please don't send me to prison, please, please, please. And it, it was really scary to think, you know, I'm at least going to get eight years here because, you know, with good time, it would have been eight. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was GBH because I had to take all of the crimes I was carrying for, for everyone. Yeah. So this is probably the part of my story that I buried and tried to pretend didn't happen. But really it was my my biggest turning point because mm. the last 20 years of my life have been the most insane but yet they could have been in prison mm. and I think she really believed me when I said I really want to change my life please let me go on and and make everyone proud and I did mean it I don't have anyone to recommend me you know today I could I could ask a hundred people to come and testify for me no one came that's how bad I'd got there was mm -hmm. no one to say anything good about me. And then I realised, you know, I have to save myself. This yeah, you have to advocate me. for yourself. Yeah. And I think that was it, me going, oh, my God, it's really me against me here. So that was my turning point. And they put me on electronic tag. Okay. And I was house arrest. And as long as I studied, and that was it. That was the deal. And it was, we're going to set an example we're going to see what happens if we allow this girl to continue her life yeah 
and see what happens. And they said, we don't want to take your education away from you. Because even though I, I'd been expelled, I went on to do, I self-studied and I, you know, studied in my personal time and, and I talked my way into doing a, a course at college. And yeah, that's when I learned the, how to persuade people. It's where I learned about PR. Well, so you're obviously very, very bright. School wasn't working for you for the reasons that you've explained. And so do you think a part of it as well, when you're standing in front of the judge that, and because you could demonstrate that you were doing this self-study, that it sounds like they really, I know you said you played a wild card in terms of your white privilege, but it sounds like that judge really did genuinely see your potential. Did you feel that, that she wanted to, she was almost, it sounds like she was potentially a little bit emotionally invested in you being able to prove yourself? Mm, maybe so. Maybe so. I hope so. Like this is one of those moments where I, I actually go, yeah, maybe. Maybe <laughs> the colour of my skin. <laughs> so then what happened? So you, you had your electronic tag, you were continuing studying at home because I know you went on to university Mm-hmm. Tell us how that that part of the story played out. I was able to study um, through the London College of Music and Media while I was on TAG because that was the closest uni to me with what I wanted to do. Mm. And then I went on to Leicester to study business. But obviously being on TAG, I had to, you know, I learned how to create a pitch and to try and sell myself. So I wrote to various unis and that was the only one that came through for me. And, to, you know, I had to sit in, in front of three lecturers and, and pitch myself to why I felt that even though I was a, a criminal, they should give me a chance to, to be educated mm. and to further myself. And it was part of the, the you know, my re- rehabilitation with courts and, and they believed in me as well. So that's one part of my journey as well, that if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where mm. I am today because no other uni would look at me or college would look at me. And I think it's, yeah, like you said, like knowing that you do actually have something, even though the, the world is may not tell you that you have to believe that, you know, you've got to know your worth. And I think being in that position, I thought if I don't believe in myself, no one else will, you know, my parents obviously love me, but mm. I, I've got to know I, I'm talented and I've got to grow those talents. So, yeah, they took me on and then I just studied. When you've got so much to prove, hmm. you, you work harder, I find. I think I find it harder now, now that I'm seen as successful and everyone expects me to, to do these great things. I kind of want people to not believe in me because I know that's when I do my best work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, tell me I'm great. Tell me I'm terrible. Yeah. Then I'll have something to push against because yeah. I want to rebel. That's my nature. I can prove you wrong. Yeah, there's nothing better than proving people wrong. It makes you wake up every day and fight for your life. I am with you. It's like rocket (laughs) fuel. (laughs) When I saw the Michael Jordan documentary, Mm -hmm. he used to get into fights with people. And he used to, yeah, he used to be a bit of an antagonist because he wanted to get rolled up and he he wants to be proved wrong. I kind of felt like, yeah, that's given me, me life again. Who can I create an argument with? Who can I get to tell me I'm, I don't know. I feel like there's like um, a niche here for a business. I don't know. <laughs> Someone who you pay to argue with you. 
yeah, tell me I'm terrible and I'm going to fight and tell you I'm amazing. And then it's like, hey, yeah, I am. I was feeling a bit low this morning, but yeah, I'm pumped <laughs> up now. <laughs> One of the um, interesting things or, or twists for you is that you found yourself in Dubai. How mm. did that come to be? Well, this is the thing. I studied and studied to the point where I actually graduated top of the class and got a first, which is insane. Like, I don't even know how I did it. Amazing. Well, I didn't do it. I did it with the universe. I did it with my higher self because I tapped into that. And I, while I was self-studying, I found out about self-help. I found out about spirituality, metaphysics, the law of attraction. I was studying that stuff before even the secret. So I kind mm -hmm. of had tapped into that and I used it to get my first because I, I, I understood about the power of visualization and that just fell into my lap. I can't even tell you how that did. I think it was actually probably one of those um, Essex gangsters that I used to hang out with that still used to kind of pop into my radar when I was trying to like better myself. Mm. But, you know, they were also businessmen and nightclub owners and I used to still go out and hang out with them and, and they used to tell me things. And part of it was this, you know, you've got to have a vision, you've got to have a goal if you want to score, you've got to be able to see the future in front of you so earlier on I, I adapted these little methods before I I fully grasped self-development industry mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I did use them but when I finished and I had this degree and I was like wow I well now I guess I can do anything now I have this piece of paper I guess I should get into media or something so I, I was headhunted and went to I went to work for this media agency and I was working suddenly with all these huge brands and and I felt like I was kind of living the dream. But then I realized I wasn't because it was like school again. And there were all these rules and you have to climb the ladder of success. And we're only going to give you £13,000 mm. a year, even though you're helping us make millions. And yeah, of course, I was a graduate, but I wasn't stupid. I was like, I'm doing most of the work. I'm here 12, 14 hour days. This is ridiculous. And people said to me, you know, this is the way it is. This is mm, what you have to mm. do. And I'm like, well, I don't want to do this. This isn't what I want to do. Um, and this was obviously 15 years ago, mm. maybe more. You know, when we were saying at the beginning, you know, there's there's these, there's this, the format, and you must follow yeah, this. Yeah, this is the past. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely no way. I don't, I don't want to do this. And then I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Worst mistake of my life. <laughs> because I woke <laughs> up and I was like wow I've just spent all this money trying to educate myself got myself into serious debt and I'm now in this this world where I've now realized why when I was younger I used to say why are adults so sad mommy mm. what why are they so sad why, why do they look so grumpy because adulting is hard and we're suddenly sucked into this world where we don't actually really like these jobs and we're working all day to pay for, you know, the rest houses we don't actually yeah. live in and all of that. And then I was just like, I don't want to do this. And about six months into that job and I found out about Dubai and this tax-free, sunny haven. The streets where... are paved with gold. <laughs> Yay. I thought London was paved with gold. And uh, no, Dubai was. And I just packed my stuff, handed in my resignation, that no fear vibe that I had from you know growing up on the St Albans streets taught me 
to just go out there and, and just grab what's yours and, and fight for what you want. And I just flew out there with like no plan. It was insane. I just packed up my apartment, sold everything, had like two grand to my name and and just went out there. I think I'd been traveling a little bit when my tag came off. I went to Egypt for a month. I went to Thailand. I did, you know, the usual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that kind of gave me the confidence to travel. And the, obviously when the tag comes off, you just it's like another freedom release from it's like lockdown but worse like you've all experienced what it feels like to be on tag um <laughs> a, a small version of that mm. except you're with your parents and no friends come to see you anyway yeah I went out to Dubai and I just decided to to make up my own rules of life and I had these skills I knew I had certain skills and I just started selling myself and these skills and I realized well, I could just see where there were, were niches in the market over there because it was you know this 20 years ago 15 years ago it was the start of the city so and they they desperately needed westerners to come in and help yeah. their city grow and if, you know I must have read about it in a magazine and I think one of my friends had been out there on holiday or been to a meeting and told me of the opportunity and I just thought I'm going I'm going yeah because back then I remember at that time people were just starting to kind of hear or talk about Dubai here. And certainly nobody really knew about Abu Dhabi. And so you were there when things were, when we were starting to get it, you know, everyone had seen an image of the Burj Al Arab, for example, but it was still, I would say, fairly unusual to some extent for somebody like you to kind of drop everything and, and go over there. It wasn't on the pages of OK and Hello magazine every week in the way that it has been in recent years no it hasn't and I think that's also testament to my crazy just do what I want don't really think before I I say or do anything but I think something within me was just you know you get those gut feelings to do mm. something and I had just learned to follow it and I just thought if I don't do this you know I'm going to be stuck here in this rat race that I have no interest of being in. And I just thought, you know, even if it's just a month, even if it's six months, I'll try mm -hmm. it and then come back. And, you know, it's something I say to people all the time now, you know, I, I took a lot of wrong turns, like learn from my mistakes, but you don't have to say anything is forever. You can just go and try something. Yeah. And luckily in Dubai as well, there's rooms to rent in the city, a little bit like Airbnb. Whereas I know other cities, well before Airbnb, it was harder to do that. So you would just rent a room in a penthouse, say, for say, for a little bit less than <laughs> London. And you're just living this insane life. And back then it, it literally was, and it still is a little bit now. You can go to Dubai and, and, and be whoever you want to be. Mm. And people are there to make money, to cut deals. It's like a gold-plated rat race, if that makes sense. Mm. But as you know, the Middle East is is very interesting, but it's it attracts a lot of of wicked souls as well because there's a lot of dodgy deals and 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 things that happen over there. Wicked characters, crazy people, and then people often say, "What are you running away from?" Uh, yeah, yeah. It's well, it's very money driven, as you've said. It's status driven. I mean, when I lived there, you would hear of or meet people who were 
recovering from addiction and had gone there purposely to make it a little bit harder to get hold of particular things. It is a definitely a particular kind of environment to be living in for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I found challenging at times, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I was one of the many people that I think 50% was running towards something, you know, this, this glittering future um, mm. and, a, and a bubble of reality that, you know, I, I'd come to think that I could live like Peter Pan. And, mm. you know, I was very ego driven then as well because I wanted to prove, I was still in that trying to prove to everyone. I'm going to prove to everyone I'm a success now. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a dropout. I've got the Rolex. I've got the Range Rover. I've got the hair extensions and the Botox and I became more glamorous and mm-hmm. and a bit of a diva because I it, it was, what's your motive? I wanted to be seen as a success. I want people to respect me and to and say and be proud of me unfortunately we aren't taught what success means anyway I need to retract back and and talk about what I was running away from and obviously you can't do drugs in Dubai so that was my if I go there then I'll finally give up my the vice that I have that I knew was holding Mm. me back and I knew that it was destroying my life, you know, and you just can't do that stuff over there. No. It helped me overcome a lot of addiction. But then you switch out an addiction for something else, for mm-hmm. success, for money, for Gucci, for... Yeah, the clothes, the car. Yeah, yeah. And then you build up all these things and you're chasing all of these external external pleasures. And then you realise that, you know, the more that you fill up your wardrobe, the emptier you feel. So that was a huge lesson to learn over there that success isn't just built from the outside in and it and it took me 10 years to realize this isn't making me happy it's not making me fulfilled it's it's fun it's crazy and well you get to party at the weekend on a boat or the sun shines every day but you do know (laughs) you don't feel happy when you're sitting in a jacuzzi when you're not fulfilled and Mm. you don't know what it is that's missing because you've never been taught, you've never been told how to fill up from the inside out. Could it feel like almost going from one extreme to the other of being on the fringes of society, being in this kind of criminal environment that you described, to now going to the other end of, you know, as you said, what does success look like and the job title or the car, the trappings? Mm-hmm. And from what I'm hearing you say, it's like neither of those ends of the spectrum of, of fulfilling or healthy or nourishing mm-hmm. so Dubai yeah. was Dubai a catalyst for your next transition it really was it really was what I realized as well you know writing the memoir was that I'd upgraded my teenage rebellion for an adult version mm. and running away from adult society and responsibility and and I got in with the wrong crowd in Dubai as well. And I was working the VIP circuit and catering to, you know, the needs of people, concierge from PR to, you know, mm-hmm. to, you know, we can source anything you want in concierge. Whatever you need. Yeah. Um, so we used to work events. We used to do nightclubs, girls getting paid to party. There were so many things and, and risky risky parts to my job running from the law there was also <laughs> another nightclub fight um and you can't even swear at, at people in Dubai mm-hmm. and I think we'd got so 
ego-driven, my group of girlfriends. And we thought we were protected and and we weren't. And we ended up getting in, into a lot of trouble. And I had to cut a deal to not be arrested in Dubai. It sounds like an upgraded version, as you said. It was. But it's like the similarities are striking, aren't they? It's just you're a bit older. Um <laughs> Yeah, with more stuff and and in some ways possibly higher stakes because nobody wants to be going to prison in the Middle East. No, no. Basically, while we were there, 2008, the recession hit the first financial crisis. Obviously, we're in a second, but over there, it's illegal to be in debt. You can't pay your rent, you go to jail. Forget fighting, forget, you know, being caught with alcohol in your system. God, getting caught with codeine, you're going to get arrested. Yeah. So you never know if you're going to, you know, everybody knows, mm. you know, you can get arrested for anything in Dubai. So imagine when you're actually an actual criminal in Dubai and you think, well, forget those eight ponce years I thought I was going to jail in, in mm. the UK. I'm going to jail for life. And yeah, it got to that point where I thought I'm actually going to end up dead in a cell over here. A few of my friends were arrested and um, you know the front page of the newspapers it was a massive wake-up call quite a few terrible things happened while I was there that I'll never ever ever be able to tell anyone about because people will come after me like it was that bad and um I think you could say that I I took my my rebellion to the to the greatest lengths you could ever imagine and it was a massive wake-up call to say I've got to stop this this is hmm. at 30 so nearly 10 years ago, you know, to think I've spent most of my life running or chasing the rush or chasing this external version of success or acceptance or validation and, and realise that nothing is fulfilling you. And you yeah. can't for the life of you discover what it is, like how to work out what's gone wrong. So that's when I realised I just had to start again, just to mm-hmm. reboot my life and start again. So that's what I did. And so how did you start on this, what you call a kind of journey of healing and releasing all of this trauma that you'd experienced over the years? I'd read books, you know, self-development books about healing and everything, but it's all words. It doesn't really mean anything. And I think instinctively, I think embedded with in all of us is a reset button. And I think it's what we all crave. You know, some of us crave escapism and we want to, jump on a plane and go on holiday or something and some of us want to retreat into cocoon mode we all know how that feels especially as we get older we want to turn off the phone we want to close the doors we want to hide under the covers like bears and hibernate and we all know when our souls are calling out for that and mine had been calling out for that for a long time Mm. and I just knew that the answer would come if I just left everything and it was like I call it cocoon mode. And the first one I had was after the court case. And I realized I had to cut all these people out of my life. Mm. And I had to retreat. That's what I did. I had no friends and I just focused on studying and being healthy. And that was instinctive. We Mm. all have that within ourselves. We know what's right and wrong. And that's when we connect with what I like to call the higher self, you know, the soul. It's within us. It's that intuition that says, you know what you need to do. Mm -hmm. And that's just stop this. You know what's right and wrong, but we don't want to listen to it, especially if we're rebellious. And I think I just decided to start listening to that inner voice, the one I'd been ignoring my entire life. You know, my mum always says, you know, the 
the angels on one shoulder, the devils on the yeah. other. Yeah. And you just listen to the devil because it's more fun. <laughs> but it was time to knock that devil off my shoulder and my wicked ways. And it was hard, really hard to begin with because you have those impulses. You know, when you're an addict and you're mm. addicted to everything that's connected to rush and adrenaline, you have to just stop it and you have to start listening to the angel that says, take care of yourself. So I finally left Dubai. I went back and forth a couple of times because you always do like a drug. You go back to it um, like a moth to a flame. Mm. And then finally that was it. That was it. And there was a couple of instances where I realized I actually can't go back. Um, so I retreated to my mum and dad's new house in Dorset where they'd moved from St Albans. It was perfect timing. Hmm. And I stayed there for a whole year. I took out all my extensions. I didn't wear makeup. I didn't drink. I gave up alcohol. I've barely touched it since. This was seven years ago. Mm -hmm. I threw out my SIM cards. I, at one point, pulled the plug out of, you know, the house, that the house phone, the landline, pulled it out mm -hmm. because people were calling the house. I literally just pulled the plug on, on the whole world and my external appearance, everything. I just shed all the layers, sugar, mm -hmm. even down to sugar. And I, it was like, I just shed. And I think I, this is so important for everyone to do once in a while, these layers and realize, and I just became acutely aware of everything. It's like, a, it's like another wake up call and acutely aware, self aware of everything from the media I was consuming the comparison on social media and the, and what I was fueling as well. Here's my fabulous life. Actually, it's not because I'm actually full of anxiety and depression and stress and I'm promoting a fake filtered world. And I had to, I had to stop a fake reality to mm. everyone. I even dyed my hair to brown. It was, it was, per, it was peroxide blonde for 10, 15 years. I literally just became a different person. I rebooted mm. my entire life. I became like meditating. I started writing. And yeah, I guess it was a natural thing. I didn't read any book that told me what to do. And yeah, I, I just slowly began to change who I was. And I was in, I went from caterpillar. I wouldn't say butterfly at this stage. <laughs> I just came out as a moth. <laughs> I say that. I loved, I'm glad that you said about the butterfly because I really like your reference about going back to the cocoon stripping everything away listening to yourself making space to listen to yourself and that idea that we all have the resources within us we all know what we need you actually wrote to me ahead of this and I, I just wanted to quote you because I love this you said we must heal to evolve we must let go of everything that weighs us down in the caterpillar world to rise up and fly as the butterflies we were always meant to transform into. I think that's absolutely beautiful and it resonates so much with me because at the beginning of lockdown and my husband was laughing at me, but I was saying, right, you know, I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to be like a butterfly emerging from her chrysalis better than ever. But there is something about that, isn't there? That the the process of transformation and I for one I feel I'm I'm still in the chrysalis for this moment in my life but 
it's really powerful stuff and you you said that so you wrote that so eloquently yeah thank you hope it inspires you and others to do the same because I think that I think we we have this ability this option for us all to to take regular breaks into our cocoons and I I think we all have to build them and it's not just a physical cocoon you have to create those spaces within our homes we need to create them mentally as well so wherever we go you know if you if you're aware that you're going through something you know it's sometimes it's pmt and you, you know you you can't bear to be around people and you know you're going through something and you're struggling or just going through a difficult time you know you're you're going through change or this natural change that we all go through, it's so important to retreat, to create these self-contained chrysalis kind of cocoons. I call them cocoons. It's cocoon mode. And to just just to tell everyone, even your friends, like, I'm in cocoon mode right now. And the ones that really know you and care will, will understand that and know that you need time. You can't always respond quickly on WhatsApp. Sometimes you have to delete the app altogether. You come off social media. Sometimes you need to just come off for three weeks. Digital detox because you're going through something and you need to focus on you. And, you know, I think that we go through, we can go through several transformations, big ones. I think we probably go through like three to five big ones. And then I think every year we go through three smaller ones. And I think more and more people and women, especially in the self-development well-being field, who are aware of themselves, um, are aware when they're in transformation mode. But I think there needs to be some certain rules or, or maybe I need to write a book about the cocoon mode, mm. <laughs> the chrysalis, sharing tips. I think maybe we all need to do that, you know, how to get through growth because we're all growing and evolving constantly. Mm. This is more of the same stuff that we weren't ever, ever given the advice for, the life manual to, to go through these, these changes that we need to allow ourselves to go through however long it takes mm -hmm. and so now is this the focus of your work through the high life vibe and the coaching that you're offering to people yeah I think everything at the heart of everything I do is transformation and whether it's something small or something big it's within you you know what you need some people want these huge changes but sometimes it's baby steps getting through one thing at a time big transformation may take a year but ultimately it is it's about transformation and it's about from where you are now to where you most want to be and the whole transformational growth part I think we we all have that seed you know like this the seed that that blooms like the rose or the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly the lotus leaf growing through muddy waters the the diamond that Yes. you know formed from intense pressure like transformation can be dark and it's hard and it, sometimes you feel like you're alone or that you know like it sounds like a cliche quote but you know the one that says when you think you're being buried but actually you're being planted and mm. to give women especially the the support they need during those dark times to know that through those dark times that's where true transformation happens you have to break like the seed has to break and shatter before it it grows and and also you know if you've ever heard about the story about the bamboo tree if you haven't you can look at it on google but it's basically the bamboo tree takes five years to grow but you have to keep watering it you have to trust and you know have patience yeah. it's growing you, you don't pick the fruit the same day that you plant the seed yeah. and growth takes time and if you really want to be something or do something or have something that you've never had you have to go through those growing pains. You have to, you have to, 
you know, you have to challenge what's going on now. You have to create real change. Whether that comes naturally, organically, or sometimes it's pushed upon us, like what's happening now. Like we've got no choice to change and evolve and adapt. Now is a real chance to change and to grow into who you're meant to be. But what I was going to say back to the seed, we all have that within us. We all, I think, were born with who we were meant to be encoded within that seed. Mm -hmm. I like to call it a jewel that's within us. We've got to find that jewel. And it's our passions. What do we love? Like what lights us up? We don't want to be those adults that are like walking around looking all sad. We were born into this world. We have to to live this way. No, forge your own path. Find out what that is within you that has to be brought forth and start watering it. Let it grow. Give yourself permission to, to grow into everything that you're meant to be. And so many people say, I don't know what my purpose is. What do you love? Start that self-inventory. Start discovering what you like, what you love. What would you be doing if if, if you could? If someone said you can do whatever you want, what would it be? So that's kind of the heart of everything that I do. It's about purpose, passion, following what lights you up. It's all about the high vibes. (laughs) This has been, you've given me so much inspiration and food for thought this afternoon, Hannah. Before we finish, I wanted to ask you, what is your mantra for modern living? I mean, I have a few, (laughs) but my favorite is there is no light at the end of the tunnel. There is only you. You are the light. Nice. That's basically realizing you're the hero you've been searching for. Like it's you against you. Realizing, wow, I am literally responsible for creating my own Mm. happiness. But you don't have to do it alone. (laughs) We're all the mistress of our own destiny, but we can do it with friends, right? Definitely, definitely. Sisterhood. (laughs) Sisterhood all the way. Yeah, not girl gangs. Absolutely not girl gangs. So with that, Hannah, thank you so much for sharing your story this afternoon. Really appreciate your candor and your vulnerability. And I'm wishing you all the best for everything that's to come. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sharing Tales. Make sure to visit our website, www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales, where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. While there, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, we'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show. If you'd like to tell your friends and family, that would be amazing too. Big thanks to our sound producer and editor, the wonderful Erin Maguire at Beyongolia Productions. Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>